Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Real Gentleman of Queens. I'm your host, Mr. Julian Villard, and I'm coming to you without my co-host today, Mr. Brian Cuellazo. Brian could not make it. He's a very busy man. He's incredibly important. I guess he's too important for you guys. No, honestly, uh, Brian isn't part of this episode. This was a very cool special episode that I did of the podcast with two great minds in the world of horror. Um, I spoke to Mr. Phil Noble Jr. and Mr. Todd Gilchrist. Phil is the editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine, and Todd is a sort of writer at large for Fangoria and various other publications. Uh, and we talked about horror movie soundtracks. That's right. We really got very nerdy on that micro genre. Uh, some of you may or may not know this, but I am a huge horror movie nerd. Uh, I worked at a video store in high school and uh, I actually wanted to be a director at one point. That was sort of what I wanted to do. And then uh, music came calling. I had with these gentlemen a month ago and it was uh, took me a minute to edit it, but let me tell you, it was worth the wait. So please sit back. You are in for a treat and listen to some knowledge being dropped. Without further ado, I present to you my conversation with Phil Noble Jr. and Todd Gilchrist. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Real Gentlemen of Queens. I am your host, Julian Villard. And you know what that means? It means the co-host is not here. That's right. Brian Cuellazo, a.k.a. Biski, a.k.a. Belover Longshanks, a.k.a. B. Chocolate. I can never say all his names right. He, he's been booted off the show for this episode, folks, because we're going to get... We're going to get real micro-genre here. Real micro-genre. And I've actually got two experts of said micro-genre on the podcast today. I am extremely honored to have them here. And I'm also so thrilled that they dealt with my constant rescheduling. Uh, really, they're two very, very patient dudes. But I'm going to introduce them now. Uh, Mr. Phil Noble. He is the editor-in-chief of Fangoria Magazine and the executive producer of the horror documentary Horror Noir, which is out on Shutter now and hitting Blu-ray on February 2nd, accompanying him on this crazy micro-genre uh, adventure. Odyssey. Odyssey, thank you very much. You're clearly the writer. Mr. Todd Gilchrist, uh, another horror aficionado extraordinaire and uh, crit critic at large. You've read him in Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and also he is a Fangoria contributor. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Good, good. How did I do? Was my intro, was it good? Did I nail it? A little girthy. A little girthy. <laughs> it's okay. It's your I, show, though. It. You know, whatever. Yeah, All yeah. good. We're good. Yeah. Thanks for having us on, man. Yeah. Thank I am so, so thrilled. Uh, Phil, you and I are like Twitter friends. This is our yes. first real uh, connection that we've made across uh, the, uh, well, certainly across the internet in person. But we don't have time to get into it, but like somebody should really do, do a deep dive podcast on like, what is a Twitter friend? And like, what is, where are those lines? And what would you do or not do for a Twitter friend? It's uh, well, I think these days Twitter friends are real friends. Okay. <laughs> the way it, just because I don't see anybody, you know, <laughs> I don't know about you guys. I just see my family. Um, sure. Same. So I'll take whatever I can get. Um, but uh, we're we, actually Twitter enemies, but we're friends in real life, and we're sort of acquaintances <laughs> in between, like when we send emails. So that's. Mm -hmm. And, and you, so you guys have known each other for. I mean, I know you guys work on the magazine together, but you've actually you're sort of you've been been in a. Similar spheres for a while, not just as friends, but you're both obviously Circles. in the same world. Circles. Yeah, Todd yeah, was yeah. like a film festival buddy. I would see him once a year, and you know he's always a good time to see Todd. And uh, 
Uh, I know Todd as, as a film writer, but I also know that he's just very passionate about music. So uh, not to pigeonhole him, but I know he's a reliable uh, you know journalist on any assignment that I, I can come up with for him. But I always love to throw music stuff to Todd because he always brings a next level awareness of uh, composers and scores and soundtracks. And and that is why you guys are here because I DM'd, which is the you know I guess I don't know what that is in real life now, but I I reached out to you. I said, Phil, I want to do a podcast with you about the music from horror movies, the music from horror films, whether it would be soundtracks or songs from bands. And you said, I want to do it, but I'm going to do it with Todd. And I said, great, let's do it. And here we are. We are going to do a, a, a crazy, I mean, just we're going to explore this genre, the space. I mean, what would you, Todd, what would you call it? Would you say it's horror movie soundtracks? Would you say it's, you know, music from horror horror movies? Like, how do you sort of lump this? Because it's it's a real mixed bag. It's You've got, on one hand, you've got scores by composers. On the other hand, you've got music from bands or songs that have been sort of appropriated and absorbed into horror movies. I mean, I think, it, I mean, you know, uh, I'm a member of the the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Every year when they decide on, on sort of their best music award, um, they kind of in- include original songs they include whatever songs were brilliantly used in a movie that might have been already uh in existence and and i've kind of adopted that uh in terms of my appreciation certainly for for horror soundtracks and scores because there are a lot of um organic original um horror scores that that have come uh completely organically from the creation of a story and then in other cases um you know you can go back through uh you know the 60s and 70s and and 80s and lots of you know uh disco uh pop uh and even sort of like electronic tracks that that showed up in the background of a of a horror movie or something like that and they become synonymous with those right uh films so you know i i just say like horror movie music horror i feel like it's music. a good catch-all that includes all those different permutations I, 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 I can dig on that. And for my personal selections for this, I stayed away from that because I thought there's like one of my all time, which we'll, we'll get into in the podcast, but I was like, this is, there are certain horror movies that use pop songs so well and so distinctly. And one I wanted to include, I'll just, but I did not, I'll give away my honorable mention is a horror movie from maybe, I guess it's a decade ago. Um, and I can never remember. It's the guy who did the guest. But, are you talking uh, about uh, House of the Devil? Uh, is that is no, but it's the he's in it. It's it's your next. It's the pop song at the beginning of Ty your West. next. Well, he uses. And I think it's like the fix, if I'm not mistaken. It's it's one of these like weird new wave bands. It's like a, a band you've like never heard of before. And I remember. So I'll jump in. You're talking yes. about the film. You're next, right? And you're yes, talking about correct. the song from you talking about looking for the magic, which is the record that yes. Larry Sessions is playing at the beginning of your yes. next, right? And 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 that is <laughs> I always think of that scene. I'm like, what a clever like that's I love that song and the way that works in that scene, I was like, what a really cool way to bring in like a weird 70s song you never heard before. Sure. Was that guy dead? Because what you know, you really dropped the ball on trying to cash in on that. Yeah, seriously. Um <laughs> anyway, let's just jump straight in. We have our categories here and we're gonna go through them all with you guys. Um it is a quintessential selection, an outlier selection, and a goat selection, greatest of all time. We're going to lead off with Phil's selection. Now, in all fairness to Phil, he gave me these a month ago, and so he may not even remember what he picked, but I'm going to just start playing it, and I'm pretty sure by his level of expertise, he's going to be able to identify this. Christmas present. I like this. I know. Here we go, baby. <laughs> so this is what Phil said is his quintessential horror movie music. This sounds, sounds retro, maybe. 
Phil, what are we listening to? This is, uh, it's the main suite from Bride of Frankenstein, which is from 1935 by Franz Waxman. And I'm not trying to impress anybody with deep cut stuff. Like I, when I heard I was gonna do a podcast with two people who knew their music, I realized that I don't know crap about music. I know what I like. And, and I have questions about certain moments in horror scores. And um, this one sticks out to me because I want you to consider 1935. And I want you to consider that uh, there's been sound in movies for all of seven years at this point. So there was no such thing as a horror score before perhaps before this film. If you look at The Mummy, which was two years before, or if you look at Dracula, which was four years before, they're using Swan Lake over the titles. They're not composing film music per se. They, they, they're figuring it out. They're trying to figure out how to do that. So the idea that you kind of didn't know what a horror score was supposed to sound like and that this guy went just went in on it and did it, that's really intriguing to me. And uh, on top of that, the fact that Bride of Frankenstein is also very campy, there's, the music is very sort of playful in parts. It's romantic in parts and it's scary in parts. And it's just kind of, you know, when you step back, it blows my mind that a person was tasked with not only delivering all those sounds, but sort of inventing that sound for cinema because yeah, it didn't I exist mean, the year before, basically. In my that's, that's, that's a killer, very, I mean, a very astute selection, I would say. I mean, I definitely even listening to it, it has a lot of that almost Raymond Scott quality, which is a lot of the stuff that, you know, all the early Looney Tunes adopted. So it has that almost like uh, hyper-exaggerated, all the, the sweeps and the swells, where it's like the, the music is sort of really being cinematic. It's almost almost acting as Foley in a way, mm -hmm. um, which I think is super hip. Um, I, did, I mean, obviously, I, you know, that's something I totally did not know. I'm so psyched. I feel like I'm, I, I do feel like I'm a little bit of a neophyte here, like, because I'm, I'm a huge fan movie nerd but I'm, I'm not like I'm a music buff like I, I have my knowledge I'm outside this is great um sure. well let's hope Todd has something to say about Bride of Frankenstein because I think we're out out of shit to talk about about it if that's the case well Todd I mean I, I've actually never seen it I've, I've I've never seen the actual Bride I've seen Young Frankenstein I've seen sure. all the parodies of you Bride know, of Frankenstein the thing I, I encourage people to watch the old uh, the old classics because they're 70 minutes long There's, some of them are oh, 65 minutes they, you burn through them they're not they're not slogs. They're not chores to get through. And they are dreamlike, and they will transport you. If you get a nice, especially now with Blu-ray, these films are amazing looking. And, and they, they look like fairy tales. They look like something that did not exist in reality at all. And um, I think they're very special. Um, so that's why I leaned this way for my pick. But also, again, like I said, it's, it is truly, truly a groundbreaking, trailblazing thing that didn't exist before it did. Right? Totally. And I, I love as like a, as an antidote to to like all the I mean, I just did a, another random horror movie podcast, which I would totally think you guys would love. But my buddy uh, Cecil Baldwin does like a crazy horror movie podcast and they made me watch a weird hammer spinoff called Horror Express, hmm. like which you, I'm sure you guys know, but like I'd never heard of it. And I was I was like, oh, my God, this movie's 90 minutes long. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's done. And I feel like today, especially with all the television shows, it's like just to watch something that has a beginning, middle and end and you get in and out is like kind of a nice feeling. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's move on to Todd's selection. Unless, Todd, do you have some Bride of the Frank Frankenstein uh, thoughts you want to weigh in on? I have yeah. no insights that are uh, more profound than the ones that uh, that, that mean, Phil made. I mean, Franz Waxman is, is I mean, he was a, a very yeah. uh, prolific a, composer at that yeah. time. Um, and so, you know, um, he was essentially creating and building on the on a musical tradition that was certainly part of that era, but I think obviously as, as Phil pointed out, you know, it's like he was foraging territory 
um, in terms of genre that I think that not other, not a whole lot of other people were doing at that time. I mean, um, the only thing I, the only thing that it reminds me of is you can listen to old opera um, that, that eventually became um, sort of the foundation for stuff that people like Danny Elfman did. Um, And, and there is that musical tradition, which I think has sort of that, that definitely influenced and infiltrated in early cinema because it would, it, it allowed the level of theatricality that Phil mentioned. Um, and, and then, you know, different people throughout the history of cinema have built on that and, you know, created what have become not just leitmotifs for a single film, but leitmotifs for, um, an entire genre. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, he mentioned these, these early horror classics, you know, one of my favorites is Creature from the Black Lagoon. And the thing that I is, is honestly synonymous with my memory of that is that this incredibly loud sting of da 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 that happens every single time you hear or anyone's anywhere near the creature from the Black Lagoon. And, you know, it's like that was something that at that point was boilerplate, but at the time or, or, or you know, a few decades uh, prior was something that really did not exist in terms of the way that we think of horror movie music, you know, a loud noise, uh, uh, strings, right. you know, and those kinds of things that you were talking about, even with like sort of the Looney Tunes um, tradition that is um, doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of creating mood. Well, what is the, there's that great Hitchcock quote about Psycho where he says, um, like, the scare is like 60%, oh God, I'm going to screw it up. But he, he basically says it's the music. He, he, it's like, it's like he, and then also quick shout out to Franz Waxman, Franz Waxman, my, my Jewish brethren from Germany, uh, did the score for Rebecca, Sunset Boulevard, Rear Window. This guy's no slouch, man. Mm-hmm. Like, like an OG, Sunset, you know, it's, it's not the pictures that got, it's not me who got small. I don't even know. I'm messing up all my quotes now. I'm supposed to be good at this. Um, <laughs> All right, so moving along, let's get into yours, Todd. This is what you consider to be your quintessential horror movie music. Ooh. The thing that I forgot about is that the that the clip of this has a somewhat significant portion before the actual theme starts i mean i i jumped i I don't you guys can't see the video i physically moved when the sting came in uh well what are we listening to todd what is this strange music um well this is uh the theme from friday the 13th part three um and that uh particular um that particular film was shot in 3d and um, in 1982, they were trying to capitalize on a disco craze that had peaked about three years before. So, <laughs> good, good, um, excellent timing there with the disco, by the way. Yeah, <clears throat> but the the theme is was performed by uh, or co-composed by Michael Zager and performed by this disco group called Hot Ice. And um, I mean, I would say the, the, what I say quintessential Harry Manfredini's score for Friday the Thirteenth is I is I would say a cornerstone. Um, in terms of uh, both contemporary and carrying forward the legacy of the stuff that Phil was talking about in terms of um, uh, horror scores that were 
um, incredibly uh, influential that borrowed from, you know, uh, proud traditions that preceded them. I mean, um, Harry Manfredini has, you know, acknowledged the influence of, of, of music from Bernard Herrmann's Psycho and other things like that that were, um, that were influential to him. Um, but, you know, the theme, the, the, theme to Friday 13th part 3 and 3D um, <clears throat> was one that I chose a bit as a as a selfish choice as well because um, of, of the article that I wrote which in, in part I think inspired uh, Phil to invite me to join him on this um, because one of my particular areas of of specialty and focus is horror disco um, and you know which has a short-lived but uh i think important um seg segment of of horror music history uh through the 70s and 80s and this was sort of um for me um the embodiment uh you know one of the the pinnacles of that uh subgenre and um, this score i mean the score in general i mean you can't listen to a moment of Harry Manfredini's score and not immediately know, in my opinion, that it is Friday the 13th as opposed to Halloween or anything else from that era because it is so um, identifiable. But uh, but that theme in particular, um, I just think it's so fun because you listen to, it's the beginning of the movie, it's supposed to be in 3D, you're watching the the credits and, and it's got all these cool um, echo flange effects and everything that are in the middle of this uh, what's supposed to be scary and they got all these sort of um, you know early 80s keyboards and everything at the same time they're doing a version of Harry Manfredini's score for Friday the 13th and it's um, I don't know it's really uh, I mean it, it, that, that particular piece is really fun for me but it kind of opens the door it's kind of all my choices to some extent were inspired when I was picking them to open the door for a greater exploration of um, the way that a composer creates a body of work identifiable with a monster or a movie series totally i mean well, what what i think is also great about that choice too is that like you know and we're i think I, it's feel it's like a self-aware piece of horror movie music where it's like you know i think and i'm you got you guys tell me but i would imagine you know this being the third fire of the 13th the slasher you know genre isn't like full effect and so there is so there's sort of an awareness and a silliness to it knowing that we're going to see something that's scary but it's, it's also it's, yeah. it's uh it's it's announcing a party i think uh, exactly the, the part three theme where, whereas uh the first two were kind of keeping it pretty serious um like you know what you're doing you know why you're there we all know why we're here today and it's sort of like you know turn up turn on that disco ball and, and let's dance and um and you know and the article that, that todd mentions by the way is in the new fangoria which is issue 10 should be on shelves in about a week he does a whole exploration of the sort of the rise and fall of horror disco which uh uh, as expected, uh, he knocked it out of the park, and I'm excited for people to read that I'm, one. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm excited. I might, I might have, to, I might have to become a Fangoria subscriber after this. The fact hey, that I'm not, if I get one more subscriber at the end of this podcast. It's worth, it's worth. That's the what time. I mean, right? I got, that's like a great reward for this, and hopefully, yes. some listeners will subscribe. You know, the the manifold listeners and uh, that we have. Um, so, uh, the, yeah, that's I, I think that's a that's a super rad selection. Also, I was going to ask you, Todd, do you know like the quintessential, you know, Jason effect, the shaka shaka whatever the is is that a manfredini creation like yeah. is that part of the score um, so yeah, that was I mean, like it's a, it's a fairly famous story um you know that essentially when he was creating the themes which like i said they were very much influenced by psycho uh and and bernard herman but he was trying to come up with something to to sort of evoke um the sound uh not to spoil anything but it's came out in 1980 so it's been 
you know, 40 years. So if you, if you, if you don't know this by now, um, Jason's mother, in fact, is the, what? Is, is the killer in the original Friday the what? 13th. But, but there is this, that sound, that sound of the, uh, that's in there, that sort of whispering noise. He sort of looked at uh, the way that he created it was basically Jason saying, kill mommy and it was that that was a sound that he used as the again a, a if not a backbone then a flourish in the scores that he created for the original friday the 13th so now i mean you know and, and by then of course um slasher movies were in full swing i mean um when friday the 13th came out but they like jumped you know like a hundred fold as a consequence of its success and um, and so now, you know, we think it's like you think about slasher movies. It's certainly in the 80s as that being almost the sound of that entire genre to some extent. Um, also, another great example where it's like the composer basically doing Foley, you know, I mean, like yeah. that's something that you wouldn't normally think that the composition like he's literally making a sound effect, you know, as part of the score. Um, sure. Also, and, and one of the reasons I actually know about a lot of the kind of progression of the slasher films is uh and another shout out to you know the the Phil's incredible uh, credit reel, but uh, there is a insanely long, insanely great documentary. Is it on Shutter uh, called In Search of Darkness? Is that the one that you're in? Right, you're, you're I'm like, in that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't make that. Yeah, you did not make hours. it, but you come off really well. You great. look great and you sound great. No, That's it's all it's, that matters. and if you, it's like it really, I, I, my buddy who is very jealous that we're doing this, who is another singer songwriter with a penchant for horror films. Uh, he, I, he's like always trying to ask me for like crazy weird cult horror movie selections. And, you know, I worked in a video store in high school. So like, I've obviously seen a lot. And I said, you know, you should watch this movie and just rent everything in the movie. Sure. <laughs> yeah, they like, they, they leave the very few stones unturned in that documentary. So, but you know, on that note, it, it should be said that you, you keep calling us experts. And I, I think Todd might be an expert. I'm definitely not an expert, but our, our selections are at least sort of an intermediate level. Like we're not going to talk about John Carpenter's Halloween score. Everybody's heard the, the story about five, four time. And he did it himself because his father was a musician, yada, yada, yada. I don't yada. know if everybody's heard that story. Well, first of all, I'm Listen. the basic bitch here. It's going to get real. I'm about to bring it to like the whole most obvious level in a second, but I oh, know you guys, are, you are, you are aficionados. You're experts as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I just you know. blow up your pick. No, you didn't. No, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I just basic. wanted to explain that you, that, you know, when we're talking about essentials and greats, we, I think Todd and I also are like sort of excited to talk about the, the ones that haven't been of sort course, of talked to death. Of course. So, you know, I think our picks might reflect that. Well, yeah, for sure. I'm going to, I'm going to be as basic as possible. Bring as it back this to the is, basement. This Let's is the, I am in a basement. I'm, I'm believe it or not <laughs> in a basement right now speaking to you. Um, this is my quintessential pick, uh, and All I've right. got a couple reasons for picking it, but you guys are going to just be like, roll your eyes as soon as you hear it. Here we go. All right. Come on, roll your eyes at me. Well, you know, it's hard, it's this, hard, to, it's hard to throw shade at the essentials. I mean, that's a, that's a classic. This is the jam, and I've got reasons for it. Um, you are listening to Mike Oldfells. I always call him Mike, uh, Mike Outfield, as in the band The Outfield, but no. This is Mike Oldfield. Uh, Tubular Bells. Uh which, uh, if you don't know, is kind of the theme of The Exorcist. Um, so rather than talk about sort of the horror significance, I think what's really interesting to me about this track is that it basically is the birth of Virgin Records. So this is what put Branson on the map, this one song. Virgin Records didn't really exist 
right? The whole brand of Virgin was nothing. And it was this was the first release that exploded and essentially allowed him to create his empire, which I think is really fascinating because this was like, you know, a mega, 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 mega. It wasn't just like a song in a horror movie. It was like a hit, like a legit hit. Uh, according to the Wikipedia, it... Uh, it sold 15 million album, 15 million albums worldwide, and it's 2.7 million in the UK alone. Which, to give you an idea, like once you get over 2 million sales in the UK as a former UK resident and member of the UK music industry, you're like in Beatles territory. You know, if you can sell to over 2 million records uh, natively. Um, what are some other fun facts I can drop for you about this? I mean, I'm sure you guys have some stuff to go, but this was this was not uh, written for the um, the movie. Yeah, it existed beforehand. Right. It right. was, and this is a great example of like a song that was sort of used to, you know, great effect. I mean, it's funny too because this section of the song it gets all like weird and proggy and like yeah. emotional. Like yeah, this yeah. is not in the film, you know. It's um, a also, needle was, drop. Who knew? Exactly. Uh, he's he's also was nineteen when he did this. Whoa! I didn't know that. And he played yeah, everything. I didn't know that either. Pretty bonkers. Um, I don't know. What do you guys got to say about this thing? I mean, it's also twenty five minutes long. <laughs> Well, let's vamp a little. Um, no, I mean, we, we just talked about Halloween, and it's clear that this was a huge influence on sure. Carpenter when he sat down to do the Halloween score. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I just watched on Hulu the Exorcist TV series from a couple of years ago, which I just somehow missed. And that first season is pretty damn good. And they, they sort of, they drop this at the perfect moment. And it's not like the theme of the show or anything like that, but they use it. But they use it very, like, sort of dramatically in, in, a, in a really interesting place narratively. And uh, that's and so I heard it a week ago, which is it's funny to see hear it here again today. Um, they do a nice job with it. And also, like, is this the first time we have the use of a pop song in a horror movie? Like, is this sort of the prototype for that? Like, because, I mean, we're a piece of music that was extrapolated, like, from some other context, recontextualized for this sort of dramatic effect, you know? I mean, this is what seventy three. This is pre, this is pre, pre predating Scorsese, predating like all these sort of you know where pop music becomes a huge factor in in movie. Like, well, I mean, cause, I would say, I mean, it certainly wasn't the first time. Sorry, to, not to interrupt. But no, go it, it go go. It certainly wasn't the first time that that pop music was used in was either either appropriated or used in. Um, like a, like a film period. I mean, you know, the sixties sure. and the sixties were in particular littered with films that that utilized pop artists, both beach, um, beach movies. Uh, yeah, or, 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 like organically, but also you know used songs. I mean, like in the same year that this came out, American Graffiti came out. So you know, right. I think we can't discount um, the 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 abundance well, so I, I, of I guess that use. more specifically like in, in the context of, of horror you know but, but i i'm trying to think if there's if like yeah. you know i bet there's some diegetic stuff if i'm even saying that word right in like uh dracula ad 1972 because he like goes to swinging london and it's like all these hot sure. london babes and nightclubs and stuff so there's you're probably hearing it in there but as far as using it as score which i think is like what we're talking about here i would have to really think about yeah whether just, that's that's happened before i don't think I, frenzy did anything like that frenzy had a very retro old old school score um anyway i just you know being i wanted to throw throw one to the because i'm going to get a little deeper as we go i just wanted to throw one to the to the plebs here you know the sure. people well, listening I, to, I did want to add um yeah. one interesting footnote um is that lalo schifrin was actually commissioned to create a score for 
um, The Exorcist really? before uh, William Friedkin decided to use that piece, and then a lot of Christoph Penderecki and and a lot of really um, um, uh, sort of like transgressive, really experimental music. And Lalo Schifrin did a score for The Exorcist that was so um, frightening that they that he basically decided he couldn't use it. And Friedkin <clears throat> thought that. Uh, what's that? Friedkin thought that. Yeah, yeah. And so wow. he created this. And there was an original. I don't. I actually am not 100 percent sure if the if the trailer was even actually released. But there is a trailer that had Lalo Schifrin's music on it, and basically it created such uh, feelings that that was what maybe led him to withdraw it. And in fact, um, I've looked for that music because basically um, Waxwork Records did a reissue of this of the soundtrack a year or two ago. Um, and I will say that they s somewhat um, obscured the fact of what, what exactly was on that release. And it wasn't until I bought it, which is still great, that I discovered that it didn't have that, that Lalo Schifrin music. And the only place that that Lalo Schifrin music has been released was when um, Warner Brothers Home Video released a soundtrack for that when they released a VHS box set in like 98 or 99 and it has two tracks at the end and it's two pieces that Lalo Schifrin uh, composed which I went and found on Discogs I bought just the CD by itself Yeah I was going to so say Discogs tracks, is good but, that's um, that's where you that's it's what really Discogs unsettling. is unsettling um and the other one's maybe just more like kind of a I think it's called like a guitar ballad or something but it's it's uh but that music's really good and you know it's sort of like this weird footnote in Exorcist history Wow Todd is the is the trailer you're talking about the one with the strobe effects Yes yes Oh okay I got to go look for that I I yeah. wrote that up once upon a time and, and uh yeah it's uh I remember it sounding very unfamiliar. Like it yeah, wasn't what yeah. I was expecting to hear. They had this weird music that he created and um, and basically Friedkin was like, I, I mean, he might have already just put in some of that other stuff, that Penderecki and the other stuff. And he was like, well, this is pretty good. I think we're good where we're with what we got or something. But, uh, but yeah, that's, so anyway. That's wild. And for those of you who don't know, Lalo or Lalo, I'm not even sure how you say it, um, but one of the ways. Um, Mr. Uh, Schifrin. Mr. Schifrin, uh, composer of, of the Dirty of the Dirty Harry score and a million other great seventies Mission, mm -hmm. Mission Impossible. Yep, exactly. You know, an iconic Planet, Planet of the Apes TV series. Planet yeah. of the Apes TV series. <laughs> Underrated. Uh, you know, and, and he <laughs> he's got some series. weird like there's some there's actually like some weird like Lalo or Lalo Schifrin like seventies like funk albums too to check out that are real strange. Um, Black Widow right, is really so, good. Black Widow. Yeah, Black Widow. There you go. There you yeah. go. Um, all right. Moving along to our outlier pick. This is usually the pick that we use to sort of what we would say would push the boundaries of what we would consider the genre would, mm. would hold. And and uh, that's at least the way we typically interpret it. But you know what? Whatever you picked was fine. I did not um, do that. All right. Well, that's great. Heads we're gonna up. Still, we're going to talk about that. We're going to go to Phil's pick here, which is uh, a great pick for the genre. Oh, this feels outlier to me. This is pretty. Feels, does it feel familiar too? Because <laughs> here's what I want to talk about. Here's what I want to get into. But tell me, what are, we, what are we listening to, Phil? What are we talking about? Well, some might say you're listening to the theme from Psycho. In fact, a lot of people have said you're listening to the theme from Psycho. It is, it, it is sort of beat for beat and movement for movement, very reminiscent of the Psycho theme. Which is a lot of a lot of uh, score. You know, the basic score is will tell you. Well, you know, Psycho was. Uh, 
only strings. There was no percussive, no, no percussion and no, no brass or woodwind. And it's, he's using the exact same energy, but the arrangement is different in that there's like oboes and shit in there. And, yes. and so again, I'm using, I'm using you guys as a captive audience. I don't, I don't know enough about music, but A, how do you steal this music so, like and that, and that piece of music? How do you how do you go? I'm going to take the psycho theme and I'm going to homage it, and uh, and and what is it? You know, I guess I want to talk. Is I don't know if it's music theory or, or what, what we're getting into, but how does it go from like this sort of very intense experience of psycho? How does it become this playful thing? Uh, what are, what are we listening? Phil, what is this? Tell us what it is. Oh, it's Reanimator. Did I not oh. say that yet? <laughs> no, you didn't. They don't know who this is. And this is the who... title. This this is playing over the main credits of Reanimator, and it's um, you know, I, I think even as a teenager, uh, renting the VHS, I was like, oh, sounds a lot like Psycho, and I never quite understood the the idea of of appropriating Psycho's main theme to this degree, um, and then as I got older, I I recognized that it wasn't a, a carbon copy and in fact the mood of it is completely different from the psycho theme and it's again i'm fumbling in the dark but is it is it the choice of instruments is it how do we get from there to there you would typically i think you're referring to the orchestration of the there piece mean, meaning that uh yeah there's a lot of quirky goofball choices that are made and i think when you're saying that the reminiscence of psycho at least what i'm hearing like it's the rhythmic figures you know it's the way that's sort of the whole thing that's sort of pulsing off kilter a rhythmic motion of it. Um, to but me, it I would has... have said like it's using the notes, like it's 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 actually using. Do you yeah. not do you not feel that or? It's no, yeah. it's a rip. It's a straight up psycho rip. You're absolutely right. Now that you pointed out, I mean, it's it's but with just like you know, almost like Peter and the Wolf style instrumentation. You know, where it's like super goofy. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I I would chalk it up to the arrangement. Um, you know, I mean, you know, there's you can there are plenty of. Uh, be it jazz standards or or pop standards that were done, you know, in different different ways that give them entirely different feelings. I mean, you know, we just got over, we just got done with the the Christmas season, and you can listen to a version of uh, of the Christmas song by James Brown, or you can listen to the Christmas song by Nat King Cole, and they sound you know totally different based on the way that they're arranged. And I think what they did was they sort of like broke down. Um, Bernard Herrmann's um, themes into different pieces and then just sort of rebuilt them. And then, you know, what's, what I really like about that reanimator theme is, um, is that it's got that like weird pulsing backbeat. And that to me, like, I think completely changes the, the feeling to begin with. But then what he's doing is he's like sort of taking like the da, 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 and then like putting that in a slightly different place. And then when it all comes back together, it sounds similar. And you're like, because I think we all do this um, when we're listening to music or we watch mu movies from a, a uh, you know, uh, or you watch movies from a similar time and you're like, these all sound the same. And to some extent, it's about like the what the instruments that were used and it's the way the recording was at that time and things like that. And I think that um, in this case, it was something where I think it's Richard Band, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. did uh, yep, yep. And, um, and, you know, he basically just sort of like took all those parts that we're familiar with, the way that those strings were arranged, and then built them into something that um, he was clearly not trying, he was trying to be cheeky to begin with by, by doing this as, is it could either be a complete 
completely brazen act, but I think that he makes it a little bit cheesy by, um, and it, I think it sets a really appropriate tone also for the movie because that's exactly totally. what the movie is as well. Right. It's it's like it's not that it's not doesn't have some scares to it, but um, you know probably until maybe the last five or ten years, the number of full you know, or, or let's say horror comedies that were worth mentioning was maybe four or five and you would have evil dead two, you would have reanimator, you would have, you know, return of living dead. And, and, you know, and that I think really sets that tone even before you get to see Jeffrey Combs act like a complete maniac. So, right. No, it's, it's, it's very much. I mean, if, if any of you have not seen reanimator and you uh, it's not gonna say it's gory, but it's like you know, it's you, gory. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty gory. It's pretty over. It's pretty. It's over the top. It's eighties gore. I think it's pretty. It's right. not. It's nothing you wouldn't see on The Walking Dead any given week at this point. Maybe totally. But there yeah, are I mean, moments not, in that it's movie that cartoonish, are cartoonish. But it's still gore. it's cartoonish. Yeah. That's exactly it's, what it's like. Julian, it's goofball. I, as a as a musician though, like I, I guess I want to hear some insight into like the 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 punk rock of it all. The 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 idea of like of what the making the decision of what Todd just described. Like you're you're tasked with scoring this thing, and and you're and you're gonna, I don't know. It's just it just seems so like ballsy and like and uh, audacious. I guess is the word I'm looking for. Well, I feel like what I get out of it, hearing it, is again kind of almost very similar to Todd's first selection. It, it has this sort of like self awareness to it, where it's like this this the audacity and the boldness and sort of the almost like tastelessness at times. Like there's nothing hip about that theme. I mean, it's hip in it's unhipness that sort of is very like, it sets the tone for the movie because if you, you know, I remember the first time I saw reanimator, I was like, you know, 17 years old or whatever. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I've just never seen it. I can't believe. And then, you know, I think from beyond might even go like a step beyond, you know, it goes even crazier. There's just stuff in those, in those, and is it the director Stuart Gordon? Is that who it is with that stuff? It's like, there's stuff in that movies that is still in my mind, those visuals. I'm like, they're just so distinct. And so like, I can't believe this is actually happening. And actually, you know, doing when I watch more of kind of the docs around it, you see how like, Oh no, this dude was actually totally bonkers. Like there was some. Abs- yeah. He had a theater background. He would do extreme theater and like nude plays and shit. So he was very experimental. He was and so mm-hmm. when, when you say punk, I, I guess like the, the punk ethos is like the music doesn't give a fuck. Like neither does the film. It just doesn't care. You know, it's like, it's just going for it. Like, this is what we're doing. We're going to rip psycho off and we're going to put a bunch of oboes in there and whatever, you know? Um, and it's it's interesting too to hear that out of music out of context. You know, I don't think I've ever listened to it not watching the movie. Um, let's move along to uh, Todd's outlier pick here, uh, which is a uh, it has a foreign title. This feels like we're about to get very sophisticated on the podcast. I don't, I'm not sure. Oh, and funky. It's a great snare drum. Todd, what are we listening to? Yeah, this is uh, Francois de Robet. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, Love on the Rocks, uh, lo- sorry, Love on the Rails, excuse me. Um, it's from the movie uh, Daughters of Darkness. And um, truthfully, this is a movie I only really discovered this year. It was it was on Criterion, um, and I had it was a movie that I'd wanted to watch for a long time, and it was sitting there, and I, I went through my, um, you know, quarantine uh, horror marathon over the month of October and watch this. And 
and this i think this is from i think the movie came out in 1972 and the whole score is really good um it's not all like this but um basically you have sort of the opening music and then the next scene is this um this woman and her her new husband having sex on a train and that's the music that plays and it, the the rest of the movie is this kind of amazing um really sexy um female vampire movie um uh, you know and it's and it takes place uh in like bruges and and everything's kind of like weird and alien and um and and the the score as a whole is really fantastic it was released on vinyl i think in the last year um and it's totally worth picking up as a whole um but i don't know th th this is kind of like my wheelhouse um my personal wheelhouse of of kinds of horror scores and this and one of the reasons that i wanted to pick this is because um is because you know in the 70s in particular you had these people who were in italy who were in france who were elsewhere in the world um more so than in, in america who were coming from these different kind of jazz and and um orchestral backgrounds and so they and, and in some cases they were um session uh musicians and they were library musicians and they were creating scores and they ended up doing these things that were in a way trying to capture some degree of youth culture with um uh, with some sort of hip sound and in other cases were just doing these things because they they had no real rules in the country in which they were making uh, a horror film or something that was scary and so you end up with these scores that are like utterly fascinating i mean Ennio morricone did the score to four flies on gray velvet um and and you know he essentially uh worked with uh dario argento until dario started using goblin for his scores um, and, you know, a Goblin was doing Prague, but they also came from this like sort of jazz funk right. rock background. And so you have these people and Francois de Roubaix um, was was a, uh, I believe, uh, either Belgian or French composer who um, who created uh, this score and, and a number of others and was doing. Um, this really fascinating stuff in the in the 60s and 70s, and and so you end up listening to them. one of the one of the things that I find is when we started talking about this um, in terms of creating picks, I was thinking about is that there aren't that many scores that I really enjoy listening to start to finish because they sure. do either in some cases because they repeat the same sort of uh, m musical cue too often and in some cases it's because they're so sort of schizophrenic in terms of being really scary or whatever it is and in the 60s and 70s i feel like they were doing even though they might have only created a handful of leitmotifs for a single movie they might do four different arrangements there might be four tempos or there sure. might be like a lilting romantic version of the horror theme there might be the really scary version there might be the fast version and so when you listen to it as a score um separate from a film it's enjoyable and this was one that i wanted to pick as much as anything because i do think find it really in entertaining and enjoyable to listen to with or without the movie although the movie is really fantastic and i recommend it so first off i want to say todd you're beasting man you're just you're just you are just like i told you 
You you did not. <laughs> he is delivering. Didn't have it's, it is a, this guy is like he is a real gentleman of Queens. In, like like he's in a Hall of Fame guest list already. Beaston. Um, Julian, also, he did, he did an article. Like he he pitched an article to me. He goes, I want to write about just the horror scores from 1980. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What you got? And it's like it's this great. You know. It's um, amazing. He's the man. He's 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 the guy who, and, who and, knows the stuff. And, but, uh, but what I think is so great is like. It's just how vast the past is with this stuff. You know, like you're saying, it's just like there are these, it's like like something like this. I'm almost certainly going to go buy this on vinyl when we're done. I'm like, this is amazing. I had no idea this existed. This like funky ass. Um, it, it's just, it's, I, I don't know. I'm just always blown away that like this stuff even exists. It's like someone made it up to exist. Um, there's, there's a track on the, on the, on this soundtrack that um Lil Wayne sampled on Oh really? It was like the Carter five yeah, six, whatever. 13, right, whatever right, right. Is, you know. Um but th- it was like this thing where I was like watching the movie and I'm like, why do I know this piece of music? And it took a minute for me to like go back around because I had oh, totally I knew the Lil Wayne track beforehand. But but it's like he didn't but the thing is he didn't sample like this track that has this incredible breakbeat it was this other one that had this guitar and it was like this sort of like this descending guitar melody and you're like oh man like and as soon as you hear it in the movie you're like somebody needs to sample this well somebody already did i'm sorry continue (laughs) no i had that you know i had that same experience with um i'm trying to remember the name of this guy's uh big hit um it's uh symphonies right by this guy Dan Black, he samples the Jack Nietzsche string ending from Starman, mm. which like, oh wow, as a as a kid, it's like that was like it's like one of those things like like you were saying when you when you heard the the Friday Thirteenth Part Three, like it's like I my brain on fire in 1984 watching HBO like oh, watching yeah. Jeff Bridges like in the light, you know I'm like and I heard that it like it almost triggered like a Pavlovian response hearing that sample. Um, this is great though. So I got it. And the name of the score, just so like people know what this is, because this it's is Daughters this... of Darkness is the movie. Got it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and again, it's all by the same guy. Um, there's, I know that there's like a digital version or a, um, a Blue Underground put out a 4K Blu-ray that had the score in it, and it actually had a couple of tracks at the end that were these like either French or British hip hop. Uh, artists who had oh, sampled it that were just okay. thrown in there and i well, was kind of like i don't really know why i mean i was happy to have them but they weren't things that were in in the movie or anything but but the score is really fantastic so i, and, I mean look i mean i'm talking shit here but i clicked on francois's name on spotify and listen he gets more monthly plays than i do so maybe i'm the obscure <laughs> one maybe that's what this is um all right so this is my outlier pick from a uh kind of a score and then an artist I sort of became weirdly obsessed with uh, after hearing it Um, and I'm curious if you guys know this you probably do because I I remember when I first heard this in the movie I was like what is this music Todd's nodding already though he he knows is it disaster piece it is disaster piece it is uh, this is the main theme from it it's from it follows right it follows right yeah yeah Um, yeah and which is a perfectly fine film. If it's a very nice, I think it's a very I, good. I really like that movie. Yeah, I liked it. It's like I think I thought I was gonna like it more than I liked it. Like it's it's it was like it was almost too in my wheelhouse. You know what I mean? I'm like this is you're you're playing. You know, I wanted, um, but the music is unbelievable. And this guy, Disaster Piece, is kind of a fascinating story. There we go. Yeah, oh, some powerful synths right there. 
So, um, his real name is Richard Vreeland, and he's from uh, the island of Staten in New York. He's very <laughs> young. He's very young, this guy. He was a chiptune artist. Do you guys know what chiptune is? Yeah, yeah. Chiptune, Phil, is like, it's <laughs> essentially course, like... any idiot knows I mean, what chiptune is. Phil, how do you not know chiptune? I mean, I you call know. yourself the editor-in-chief of Fangoria, don't know chiptune. Tomorrow no. he calls and cancels all my assignments. He's like... I know, um, right? It's, no, we, we've humiliated him on, on the niche, the niche uh, genre podcast. No, chiptune is ridiculous. It's basically like... Uh, if I understand it correctly, and I, I almost going to need to define it, what it is, but it's like, um, it's basically m synthesized music made with programmable sound generator sound chips. So it's like, it's not like 8-bit music, but it's like music made from computer chips. Nerds! I know, it's some, de <laughs> it's some deep nerd shit. Deep nerd. And, 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 and it is like 8-bit. I mean, I mean that it, was that's certainly part of it. So That's part of the, I mean, it, the whole thing. But but, you, but, I mean, it basically sounds like if you made music using the same technology that they made the music for Super Mario Brothers. Exactly. Except you and, have and, now. And, was, and, well, and, that's, and that's essentially what he's doing, right? And, and, it, uh, it, I had, I'm curious to hear it, but, you know, from the description, it sounds intolerable. <laughs> well, so get this, like, I, I, I was so fascinated with the soundtrack because I was like, I've never heard anything like this. I've mm -hmm. never really seen this, certainly in a horror movie. I was like, I don't even know what, like, it's just like this weird, because it wasn't, it's not 80s, you know, it's not this like super retro thing. It's like something else because of all the digital distortion and the artifacts. Yeah, I was, but then it becomes shorthand for 80s to all the drive buyers and whatnot. I, I feel like... Which I, which which happened because they hired Disaster Piece to do the music for Stranger Things, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, that's not those guys, is it? I think is that it the is. Same? Yeah, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I think I th those. I think no, I think true. that's like these two brothers who are, and I doesn't it follows like oh, three days. Oh, those are the that's not the composers. Though. It's it's we'll, we'll it's but does it follows comes first right before Stranger Things? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean. But I don't, I don't, th this music doesn't strike my, me as 80s because it's so much more harmonically diverse. It's like really, it's very symphonic and composery, but this guy is a video game composer. And he became very known for these like video games that he did, a lot of which were like iOS apps. Like, so what a crazy weird subgenre that he has like this huge following based off of the, the scores he wrote for iOS apps or whatever. And then he somehow... Wines and what's the director's name? I can never say it right. For oh no, it's not Nicholas Winderrofer for sure. Not that guy. It's who not, did it? Follows. Who did it follows? It, it was uh, you know, the hipster dude that under the Silver Lake. David guy. Robert Mitchell. David Robert go. Mitchell. It's another three namer, right? Three um, names. But um, I don't know. I always was like when I first heard that, I was like, I've never heard. I've just never heard a horror movie use music like that. Maybe it just felt mm -hmm. very distinct and unique. And I think I identified it right away. Like this is some weird other shit. So that was my outlier pick. If, if we if we care about facts, if facts still matter on January fifth, twenty twenty one. So, so um, Stranger Things is uh, survived. Okay. Okay. Who did the guest? Oh. And so okay. the Stranger Things guys heard the guest soundtrack and then hired the hired the studio. Gotcha. Oh, really? My, my I didn't mistake, realize. My mistake. And and the guest I love and the guest, but the guest also is like a mixture. Like there's there's some like Annie songs in the guest. It's like there's some pop soons in there there's too. Some pop stuff in there. And you know, in 2014, it was kind of neat. Stevie B. Yeah, it was it was cool. I think it works for the guest. I just think it got it got. Uh, yeah, I guess the, I didn't. The, the, the soundtrack and the font. 
for the guests just got really overused. In the I, I, still, I still love that movie. I think it's, I mean, it's yeah, Stranger, Stranger Things, like it, 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 you know, it, the whole vibe has jumped the shark, no doubt. But, um, <laughs> well, but, I mean, the, the, I mean, really what it comes down to, in my opinion, is that, you know, when the guest and when um, It Follows came out, I mean, this was like, I think It Follows was 2013. Um, sure. And the sort of current synth score renaissance was in its nascent stage. Totally. Um, you know, um, John Carpenter was, you know, venerated for his scores, but he was not doing them at the time, certainly not in the way that he was back in, in the eighties and nineties and nobody else was, but everybody, I think it, I think this sort of sweep of nostalgia caught hold with a lot of filmmakers and also it's an easier way to make music in a contemporary setting because you only need a, a one performer. You don't have to like create an entire orchestral score. And so I think a lot of low budget filmmakers started doing it and a few people did it really well. And then everybody was like, oh, we should all do things because, oh yeah, we remember we love uh, these great John Carpenter scores. And then everybody started doing it and they had technology like uh, like that gentleman uh, disaster piece does. And they're able to take it in different ways and they're different musicians and they created all this stuff, which became, which I would say is, absolutely intended to be 80s evoking i mean See, it follows I, I, is set I, in the 80s is it, or, is it set or at in least 80s? it seems like it is you know it's like sort of i i feel like because i always thought for me like movies like those two movies in particular and i kind of linked them i don't know why maybe i was, like did they come out the same year the guest and it follows they kind of were like right around the they same were like time. within a, within an 18 month period probably yeah, yeah like those i i just felt like that when i saw those movies they felt very fresh to me and i thought like sort of the you know, the I mean, I, and I actually think the, the progenitor of a lot of that stuff for me was House of the Devil when I saw that Ty West movie because I was like, that's so 80s. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. he nails it so hard. Um, that's true. That, uh, <clears throat> which, you know, I never, when that came, that felt very fresh. And I, and I do, it, there's like a hipsterness to it. But yeah. those two movies feel like, I don't know, they feel like it's almost like the movies and the sounds are set in the 80s, but they're not like 80s, pure 80s nostalgia. Yeah. Does and that the make weird sense? code of this whole thing is that John Carpenter got a recording and touring career out of it. Yeah, I know, right? Isn't <laughs> like, that wild? There's a whole other chapter of his life happening now because of of this obsession with this sound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was waiting for Ghost from Mars too, but uh, you know, I guess we're not going to get that now. He's too, he's too off. Uh, no. Um, anyway, okay, so that's my outlier pick. Let's move on to our greatest of all time picks. This I am having a blast. You guys are probably. I, I've gone. I feel like a, a real housewife of, uh, of Orange County here with the two of you guys. You know, with my basic picks. But anyway, I don't we're know. Gonna... If, I don't know if it's within your uh, realm of possibility, but I think it might make sense to play Todd's before mine. Well, I'm. Not, I don't want to scold you, gentlemen, but you have this, these next two songs will break a cardinal rule of this podcast that we're going. I'm going to tell you what the rule is after we break it, but we're totally going to allow it. Let's do. We're going to skip and do Todd's. <laughs> I think I think this is Todd's. Correct. Yeah. This is dope. Todd, what are we listening to? Um, well, this is um, Trap Zombies. Um, that's that's. Uh, I really do think that like somebody should 
sample this and make it like into a, like a trap song because it's it's got the exact <laughs> right tempo for it. But um, this is Goblin's uh, L'Alba de Morti Viventi, uh, which is basically the the main theme or the title theme to Dawn of the Dead uh, of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. The and for those of you who have not seen Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, not Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Which Major is good, difference. By the way. It's good. It's good. Although, eh, I think this, I think it's the best I'm Zack sorry. Snyder film. I think it is the best <laughs> Zack Snyder film. This, Listen, the, right? What are you gonna tell me? Sucker Punch wins in that conversation. Well, um, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom for me. But uh, Zach, you know, uh, Zach, the, I'd say the first part of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is his best work. I I I I liked it. In the I theater. think he punts the whole mall thing. I just think he kind of like he went to the well, mall because the first one did. He didn't do anything with the mall. And I think it's <laughs> he's un, he's unfairly weighted because the first Dawn of the Dead is such a crazy, unique, fresh. It's still to this day incredibly fresh. It's like yeah, yeah, I mean, depends yeah. who you ask. There's a lot of people who think it's pretty uh, really gory, pretty 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 rickety. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I always feel like it's. I kind of, in a weird way, at times prefer it to the original. I like anyway. the watery sense on this part. <laughs> so, yes. but now, okay, so this but, is Goblin, right, Todd? Which correct, yes. typically are a band that is associated with the movies of Dario Argento. Correct. But this is a George Romero film. Yes, but Dario Argento uh, worked with George Romero on the movie and wrote, Oh, so that explains that. Oh, so is that explain a lot of the kind of color of the blood in this movie? Yeah, no. Dario got the blood. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, they they work together on this movie. Um, as a matter of fact, if you uh, depending on you know if you're able to track down uh, either the new 4K uh, version of the movie or um, there was a DVD box set that came out 15 years ago, there are four versions five versions i don't know how many versions of dawn of the dead there are but there is a george romero version there's like an extended version there's a there's a dario argento version and depending on which one you watch um it has more or less of this um music by goblin and and one of the reasons that i really wanted to to pick this one as a classic um is because to me it sort of brings full circle like everything we've talked about um uh, which is essentially that um, George Romero used, he has an entire album um, that was released or that was released on vinyl in uh, around 2004 that was basically all the library music, which is like the gonk, um, all the sort of goofier stuff that sort of uh, made fun a little bit of the, of the zombie stuff. Um, and I love how there is the juxtaposition of this goblin stuff, which is so foreboding. And, um, you know, the, there's a track, uh, I think that, um, that, that Phil, Phil may have picked, but, um, that has this sort of like propulsive energy to it, but there's a couple of other ones that are like where they're doing, a uh, they're hijacking trucks and, and, the, and it's this sort of upbeat adventure music. And I just love the way all these things, uh, form this kind of amazing sort of like, uh, melange musical melange where you have like a goofy piece of music. Um, that's a piece of library music. And then on top of that, you have, um, these incredible, um, you know, sludgy, um, uh, you know, horror horror pieces from from Goblin and, and, and Goblin. They're, they're like, I mean, they're like a prog rock band. Like it's like 
there's elements like you said they have these jazz leanings but it's like it's a very I don't know they're just like a very atypical thing and and I mean yeah. I, you know like that's I think again one of if you and for those of you who've never watched the films of Dario Argento like they're very they're fucking nuts and they're totally unique in in their own use of color and I still have not seen this Asperia remake worth my time oh that's fantastic is it really good I love oh, it seeing Phil, Phil, I, I think it needs to be experienced. It's, uh, it's, it's. I, I, I wouldn't say it's as good as the Carpenter's The Thing or as good as Cronenberg's right. The Fly, but it's that level of reinvention. Yeah. Okay, well then, shit, I'll, I got. I mean, I, I think the Dakota Johnson stuff might have put me off a little bit, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll get she's into it. Fine. She's fine. Um, she's fine. She's fine. You know, she's no Fifty Shades. He doesn't. He's. Uh, I've never seen. You know, I, I, I went in with pure Dakota Johnson hygiene. I had not seen her in anything in my life, and she. I also am like. She I think I'm actually. Well legitimately scared of Tilda Swinton. Like I'm since I'm like scared like she scares me. That's correct. Um so I mean, that's the right that's the right reaction. Yeah. Right. I'm like yeah, I but, just but but it should be a combination of fear, awe and attraction all at the yeah, same it, time. That's why so, I'm scared because yeah. I'm also yeah. kind of turned on. I'm like I'm scared of myself of what's yeah, happening yeah, yeah. to me. Um no so so this is you know okay so got and again goblin like uh oh cool footnote um in another life aka March <laughs> <laughs> I used to uh, work at a piano bar in New York City, and the owner is like a huge uh, New York legend and music nerd, but he went to go see Goblin live on their tour sure. when they played Warsaw and, you know, was sending me videos and said it was fucking amazing. I saw Goblin play this underground, like literally, not underground cult, but like literally this club that was like below the first level of this building, and it was the loudest thing I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> It was um, insane. I saw them at another venue, and I was like, "Oh, this is fine." But like that underground thing, like my fucking teeth were rattling. It was right. crazy, and they was, fully leaned into the the horror stuff. You know right. what I mean? They, they weren't trying to like, you know, back away from their legacy. And there was like a girl, a zombie dancing on stage, and they were projecting scenes and stuff. It was, it was something. Which is funny because like I don't know anything about the band, but I would imagine like they were trying to be like a real band. You know, they were like, mm -hmm. we're like a pro, like, you know, we're like Hocus Pocus or whatever that band was, or Focus, <laughs> or like, we're, we're, we're like, we're, we're the Italian Pink Floyd. And then their legacy is that they're like basically horror movie music. Um, all right, well, let's move on to Phil's selection. Now, now again, gentlemen, I said you did break a cardinal rule, which but is that we're not allowed to. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> what am I, what am I going to make this easy? I'm going to make this easy for you? Come on. Um, no, it's a. Uh, we we try to not pick songs by the same artist, but I'm I'm allowing this because not only like this is a we're gonna go ahead and drop this right here and see. There we go. There we go, Phil. Uh. Phil, you're watching the Channel 12 Action News Team. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like you could drop this as a local news sting and it would work. Totally. Um, and you know what? I I got a peek at at, at um. So this is also Goblin. This is a later part in the movie. This, I believe this is used during that truck sequence that Todd was talking about. I'm not same sure. Mo same movie, too. Same, same movie. band, same movie. Like, same okay, epic, go. classic, timeless film. Um, but so when I saw, I got a peek at Todd's This is from the Dawn list. of the Dead remake, right? No. This is, this is from the uh, Zack Snyder edition. This Zach, is the scene Zach when they're Snyder in the mall. Never. <laughs> they're still in the mall. Oh. I, got a, I got a peek at Todd's list, and, and I thought about changing to a different movie or changing to the, some of that library stuff that Todd was talking about. But I think still within within Goblin's contribution, it's still an interesting oh, illustration of what Todd was talking about. That opening thing is this sort of dirgy horror movie. It's still speaking the language of a horror movie, right? But once you get into this, 
And to me, this sort of bookends what I was talking about with, uh, uh, what's the guy's name that did Brian Frankenstein? Franz Waxman. Um, where that guy's trying to figure out what a horror movie's supposed to sound like. And here, Romero and Goblin are going, well, why does a horror movie have to sound like that? It, it, it can go into these other spaces. And, you know, certainly the 70s have been experimenting with that, certainly with your tubular bells thing, like they're, they're coloring outside the box. They're not just totally. giving you spooky totally. music. Totally. Uh, and certainly uh, with other, other films that had come along, um, even with Romero's Martin, which the producer's brother scored, it was this very somber thing. But I love the idea that Goblin is, is not forced into any kind of box here. And, and Romero is encouraging them to, to, when he wasn't throwing out their music in exchange for library stuff, he was encouraging them to, to kind of, uh, you know, scribble outside the lines a little bit. And I think it's, it's, it's an so interesting step in, in horror scoring in that, because uh, I think it's so easy for any, any element of horror to become stale, right? Lighting, jump scares, the, the way half of half of the horror crowd goes to see shit because they know exactly what they're going to get. The other half is more interested in seeing where you're going to take this. Take me someplace new. Totally. And I think that's those are the exciting peaks in horror for me. Where like when when somebody just picks out a new color out of the crayon box and 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 goes for it. And I think that this particular track in Goblin illustrates that really well because it's not independent. It's not something you would you could you could play this to a stranger and you, they'd never guess it was from a horror film. Absolutely, no. I think that's really astute. I think and I think the music sort of has a huge impact in that kind of in that conditioning. It's like you the the, the idea that you can like you can. It's just it's such a genre that's defined by tropes and sort of what's coming next. It's like you know it's like a amusement park ride. You know, in mm -hmm. terms of the the basic sort of nuts and bolts of it, and something like this. It, it instantly when you hear it and especially in and it's crazy i never realized that goblin did the music for dawn of the dead i just never assumed that you know they're miscredited in the film it's like score by dario argento and the goblins yeah oh, and i have no fucking idea how that happened but oh, wild. <laughs> so, you know you might even think it was just a different artist at that point well it also doesn't feel like what i know of their music mm -hmm. it feels well, very different than, than what i've come from with. go ahead yeah go ahead Todd. i didn't know how close we were I, you know not not to change the subject but i will say ironically you know this isn't even my favorite uh piece of music that goblin did for a film i mean i would say my all-time favorite is deep red i mean just that opening theme to deep red that they did is i mean first of all it is absolutely it is a yes um it's the greatest <laughs> song that yes never recorded or you know it's like a it, i mean it really is like this king crimson uh, masterpiece that um happens to have people getting you know, choked and killed. Um, and it's so good. And I, you know, and, and funnily enough, like my real journey with discovering their work happened when I went into a record store here in LA in 2002 or three, and they had an original 45 of the deep red theme um, up on the wall. And I was like, how much is that? And I knew that I was like, wanted to collect it. And it was probably 40 or 50 bucks. And I was like sold and I just bought it. And from there I started exploring. I mean, it was one of those things where I'm not even sure that like the music, even though I loved um, the music for Dawn of the Dead, I think that like at that point they hadn't really kind of broken down all the library music and the score in the way that now it's been released and reissued and, right. released and everything. And so that was like this thing that was like, it kind of just blew my mind where I was like listening to this and I'm like, you have these organs that are just pounding and it's like building and it's going to explode and these funky drums and all this other stuff. And, you know, I mean, their musical chops were indisputable, 
Um, but, you know, as you uh, observed earlier, it's like they have been, they were so um, exploratory and experimental in, in what they were doing. And, you know, and, and like Phil said, that they were, the filmmakers they worked with sort of gave them carte blanche to go, right. all right, this one, you can do this. So you, you're not listening to their scores going, oh, well, they did this. It's, you know, I mean, I say this not to denigrate somebody like Bernard Herrmann or whomever, but it's like there's a lot of composers who worked with people where you can definitely identify those things really quickly from one movie to the next and you're like and, and in many cases it's because they're so great you know they're so good at, at, at creating a mood or whatever it is and you know you can sort of tell that a goblin score is a goblin score but but they really do all sound wildly different and that's actually right, something that i find um is always so fun to explore uh not long ago um mondo released the serenote and nero uh soundtrack or score um and a track and a cue from that was used in kill bill um but which i don't think totally. it was actually on the soundtrack but i went through and listened to like the whole thing and you like go through the entire um score and it's basically um you know, it, it's like a couple of really identifiable things and these other ones that are much more sort of classically composed cues. And so it's like, it's 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 really interesting to to try to even just wrangle all of their work into one. And, yeah. And, and, I, and, do th and I do think that uh, the Dawn of the Dead score is, is a great example of the way that they managed to um, work in a, around all these other elements, create something very distinctive that also really suits the film well. Totally. And, and yeah, and I think that's something, too, that like, I don't know. I don't know where you guys, you know, because we're going to I'm going to drop my goat in a second. But like, where do you like in terms of like the horror mu movie music now? Like, I just don't know if something like that can exist now. Maybe it can in some weird budget world. But I just feel like it's such a like it just feel like you when you listen to those scores, especially the Goblin stuff, it just feels like nuts. You're just like it's like, wow, they just didn't give a fuck. You know, and they just were making this happen. And there's something about it that I feel when even when, when it's set to the it just it has a freshness. It has a sort of like it's surprising every time I hear it. I'm like, really? That's what's happening? Really? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, because I just I don't know. It's just like, you know, there isn't a level of like it becomes so much more the, the language is much more about like sort of what repurposing, you know, 80s stuff or retaking taking vibes and borrowing them and sort of re I'm, I'm sure there's somebody out in the world of that of horror mu music uh, movie music that's like doing something like totally bonkers or totally unique well my, my dummy don't know about music answer is that i feel like that uh scoring in general has kind of it's in a nadir right now that there's this the Hans zimmer factory right. which is like create some background noise from you create some drones yeah. i mean uh, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm a big Bond fan. The, the scores to Bond films should be celebratory great things, and the last two were kind of boring wow. as hell, um, and, and it's a drag. But on the other hand, you've got guys like Michael Abels, who has no history background or no horror background. Not uh, He's like a like an orchestra composer, but he delivered a very distinctive score for Get Out, and then he did it again for us. Right, he's the, that's what I was gonna say. And, that's that's a uh, yeah. And Peel went beyond just using him and us, and and did an interesting sort of reappropriation thing with uh, Todd. Help me out with the hip hop track. It's I got five on it. Oh Bye. yeah, loonies, loonies, loonies. Like he created something iconic out out of that. That was authentic to his culture, organic to the film. Uh, and you know, you're not getting that on the Stranger Things knockoffs. I, I think that totally, totally. 
and uh, and not to well, no, I'm just going to name drop. It's very strange to hear you say to refer to Jordan Peele as Peele, because I I grew up Jordan. with Jordan on the Upper West Side. He's like oh, a he's like a middle middle school friend of mine. So I'm nice. like, that's right. He's a famous film director now. He's Peele. <laughs> he's not Jordan anymore. Anyway, um, all right, let me play my goat. But that's very suited. I think the Michael Abel stuff. You're right because the Get Out score is like totally unique and strange and there's all kinds of easter eggs in it it's like it's it's totally fascinating um uh and you know big love to my boy jordan so here we go this is my go pick again i know you guys are gonna think i'm basic but i think there's some interesting elements about the score that i want to talk about because it's and it's the fucking goat i don't care what you think it's the fucking goat what are you gonna say about that one note <laughs> well, no, that's all um, we need. What, what can you say about that? You you get perhaps the greatest living composer to score your film, and he, and he scores it exactly like you scored it yourself. Well, that's yeah. what. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about this. So what you're hearing right now is the Neo Morricone score to John Carpenter's remake of The Thing from 1982. And if you don't know, John Carpenter, uh, you know, legendary filmmaker, horror filmmaker, B film movie filmmaker is uh, also a musician who scored his own movies and famously scored Halloween and, you know, so many uh, iconic, uh, so much iconic music from his movies he made. But this score was not written by him. Nope. And, you know, I want to throw a little asterisk on the shade. I just threw it up by saying it is perfect. Yeah. It is the perfect score for that film. And, and and it's and that, it, yeah. but, but you're right that it is it is bafflingly similar to something that John Carpenter would have done himself. And in fact, um, in the last year there was an EP, essentially an EP release that was a collection of tracks that um, John Carpenter composed in the in 1981 and 82 for the film that pair with um, Morricone's score. He just needed interstitial stuff. Um, and they released it. It was called like the Lost Cues or something like that. And and um, he and they were they were actually created back then. But like you listen to those and they don't sound different. And I don't think that's just because he was like trying to like copy Morricone or to to match it. I think it's just it's uh, I mean, of course, it's an amazing uh, score, but it's it's such a fascinating uh, like that's one of those things that um, I still find utterly fascinating that you listen to it and if you if you didn't know that Morricone did the score you would be like well of course John Carpenter did another classic score except he didn't do that one right and that and just everything about that movie is like completely fascinating to me just like I think it's one of the the more I mean obviously it's like one of my favorite films of all time but I also think the story of the movie its reception the way it was made like everything is just totally like it was a disaster that now is now recognized as a masterpiece, I think. And I think that's like, you, you know, they hear, they hear the stories of them filming it, you know, like just basically putting the actors through hell and like they had to live on, the, you know, it's like, it's, I don't know. I just, I love it. Um, I mean, to be, to be fair, it feels like a lot of classics now, particularly in genre films are that way. Um, you know, I mean, like it, it, a lot of t time heals a lot of uh, perceptions in, in many ways gives people, and particularly now, uh, we're in such a, um, a, a renaissance of, of revisiting films and, and reappraising them. I mean, this one was long since canonized, but, um, but I mean, it's a good, it's a perfect example of an early film where um, I think, you know, it was discounted or dismissed altogether by, uh, by audiences at the time um, and, you know, steadily built a reputation for being, 
you know, an unqualified uh, masterpiece. And, um, and it's, you know, it's utterly fantastic and from start also, to finish. If you purchase the Mondo board game, it's very hard to play. Oh, we love just, that. I played that a few times. I, I it, it's seriously like I, I was like I got all my Brooklyn boys together and we bought a bunch of IPAs and we're gonna no women allowed in the room for three hours and we're gonna do it. Literally we spent the whole three hours trying to figure out how to play the fucking game. Um but it was great. It's a beautiful game. Um gentlemen, you have the distinction of completing this podcast. I just I'm curious, how do you feel? Do you feel like you did you made something like we did something special? Do you feel like we we covered some ground? I don't know, what do you think? You know, I went into this saying I, I'm just going to be the the the, the neophyte, and, and I'm going to listen to Todd take me to school about music. I'm going to listen to you talk about some some uh, you know musical arrangements and whatnot. I, I feel like I got what I came for. I think you did great, Phil. Phil, you're like you're underselling yourself massively. Thanks. I I think that's I mean, quite frankly, that's Phil's mo. I mean, oh, you know, that's, that's his. Oh, yeah. okay, you know, so this is the shtick. Scotty on Star Trek. This you is tell a, Kirk it can't be done, it can't be done, yeah. and then you sort of pull something over out. Over the river and under promise. Un, exactly. Um, well, yeah. gentlemen, I am so grateful that you took the time that we finally did this. Again, please check out, get the newest issue of Fangoria. It's it's going to have, I mean, when this airs, it might have already been out. It's issue 10, 11. Is that what the issue is? That with, 10 uh, is coming out. 10 is coming 10. out. But if you go to Fangoria.com, you can buy back issues one at a time, and feel free to do that. Give us a spin. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Um, also, uh, Phil, you've got a uh, horror noir coming out on Blu-ray on February second. You can catch it on Shutter and uh, look for these boys online. Todd, I don't know if he's still participating in the live stream revolution, but occasionally he will DJ on the Instagram, and I have watched. True. So, uh, True. you know, get in on that. And uh, gentlemen, thank you so. Oh yeah, w where can they find you well, on the webs? Right, the, the ats. Right, just your names, Adam. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm at I'm at MT Gilchrist and uh, also uh, on Instagram at Best Dress Todd. So. Awesome! Yes. Uh, thank you guys so much for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you.